You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning! Uh, So if you didn't know who I am, my name is Kate Norcross, Dr. Dr. Kate Norcross. Uh, I teach writing at the University of Illinois. I'm a tent maker in Illini life, uh, which means I graduated finally, but I'm sticking around because I love the work that God is doing in the lives of, of college students and young adults. And I'm so stoked to talk about Jesus' words on anxiety in Matthew 6 with you this morning. So if you want to open your Bible or your phone there, uh, I'm going to pray to set the stage. I think that's really important. And then we'll, we'll launch in. Uh, Father, uh, thank you that you love the church so much. That this is the bride of Christ. That he's given his life for her. And so you care so much about your people. Thank you that you're with us in this place. And you want to speak to us. And your words have power. So I pray that, that as we walk through uh, this scripture, we'd hear your voice, uh, not mine. That anything I might say that would be unhelpful uh, would just pass out of people's minds. And everything that is of you would be sticky, that it would remain. God, show us what you want to say to us and, and how you're calling us to, to take a step of response. We love you and we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The Amazon was burning the day I found out that I was going to be teaching on Jesus' words on anxiety. Acres and acres of some of the most biodiverse and crucial topography for our climate going up in smoke. And as I read anxious op-eds, watched passionate YouTube videos, and talked to concerned friends, I could feel my heart rate rising How could I talk about Jesus' words, do not be worried about your life, when it felt like the world was literally burning around me? We live in an anxious time. Uh, A survey conducted by Harvard Medical School says that about 31% of adults will have an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. So that's just clinical diagnoses. That's not talking about those of us who just wrestle with the worries in our world. And college and young adulthood is a hotbed of worry. Uh, This is the the coffee question that we put up this week at the coffee tent. And the answers were really telling about the things that are on the minds of at least caffeine drinkers uh, on our campus. Uh, Worry is such a basic part of our life that we make memes about it. Uh, We joke about it because it's everywhere. We just pretend that the flames are normal, right? Uh, And it sure feels like there are a lot of reasons to be anxious. Uh, In college, we're figuring out crucial things about ourselves. We're making a delicate transition into adulthood in a time where it feels harder than ever to make it. Uh, We're asking questions like, how will I get a job? Will I ever find a life partner? How will I pass these five midterms? Will I ever sleep again? Throw things like climate change, mass shootings, and the threat of global war into the mix. And it's a wonder any of us is ever not anxious. And Christians are not exempt from this worry, even if we intellectually know that God is in control. 
I know this because I am a professional worrier. And not just because I've been in graduate school for a really long time. Uh, you see, I have a confession. I'm an Enneagram type six. Sixes in the house, thank you. For those of you who don't know, the Enneagram is a personality typing tool. Uh, and type sixes have a tendency to look for threats and plan for the worst. Their mantra and their idea of a horror movie is the phrase, what if? Shout out to Evelyn for that. Uh, and sadly, for some of us, Jesus' words, do not be worried, have felt like a judgment. I hear that and I say, Jesus, I'm an Enneagram type six. This is what I do. How many of you have been anxious at some point and you're telling a friend and they tell you, oh, don't worry, and it just made you more worried? Like, thank you, now I have a new thing to worry about, the fact that I'm worried, okay? Don't do that to your friends. Relationship advice. So I want to stop here and just say, anxiety is complex. It has a lot of factors and triggers. Spiritual, but also psychological, emotional, chemical. And as we walk through Jesus' words on anxiety this morning, I don't want to flatten it out or give you the false impression that if you just believe the right things, it'll be easy. And I definitely don't want to condemn you for feeling anxious because Jesus does not condemn you. Not here, not elsewhere. In fact, Jesus' heart was troubled in the Bible. He knows what it's like to deal with the weight of this world. He sees and he feels the brokenness and pain around us. And he's here not to give condemnation, but good news. We're in the second to last week of a series on the Sermon on the Mount called Kingdom Hearts that has been chock full of good news. We've listened as Jesus proclaims a good kingdom that is for the broken and needy and lays out a system of values that upends our basic priorities in its care for the unworthy and evil. And in today's passage, Jesus addresses worry because he knows that his followers live in an anxious world. And sometimes we wonder how to seek the good kingdom when we're just trying to make it. And so he offers us hope. In this passage, Jesus tells us that we can follow God in an anxious world when we live out of our identity as his children. We can seek God's kingdom when the world and our lives feel so messy because we know who we belong to and who's going to take care of us. Jesus doesn't tell us that God is going to put out the fire in the Amazon or guarantee us an easy, pain-free life. No. But he does tell us that God is our loving Father who grieves over the evil of this world, sits with us in the heaviness, and gives us unearned and outrageous provision. So we may experience anxiety, but we're not defined by it. We're defined by our relationship to God. So we answer back to our anxiety with the truth that our Father is caring for us. We choose to focus on God's priorities because we know he'll give us what we need. And we receive the provisions that our Father has given us to address the complex triggers of anxiety, which may include spiritual disciplines, talking to other believers and sharing our fears in the church, seeking counseling and professional help, and for some of us, medication. So in the rest of our time, we'll look at three technicolor illustrations in this passage of what it means to be children of a lavish father and how living in that truth can free us to follow God. We'll explore how each of these pictures speaks back to lies that often intertwine with our anxiety and fuel it. And we'll try to think practically about what it might look like to stubbornly cling to these truths as we pursue a good kingdom in an anxious world. So let's go. 
Verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Okay, let's pause here. Our passage starts by referring to something before it with those words, for this reason. So what's the first reason Jesus offers to not be worried? Let's look at the verse right before this, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the first illustration Jesus gives that I want to point out, a picture of two masters who vie for our loyalty. You see, that word for serving there isn't just an employee. It's talking about a slave, someone who is totally owned by something else. That master sets the agenda. Everything the slave does is for that ruler, who is also supposed to take care of the slave. And Jesus points out that if someone or something owns you, you won't have space to consider anyone else's demands. More extreme, you'll actively oppose the demands of that other master. Only one can own you. And I think he says this in part because one lie that sometimes underwrites our worry is the lie that if we serve something else well enough, a person or a thing or an idea, that will meet our needs. We let something else own us. And Jesus is saying, actually, no. If that thing owns you, it will distract you from the good life in God. I think it's no coincidence that Jesus points out money here is one master that we tend to serve. He knows that money is a top cause of worry. It was back then. It definitely is now. Uh, So much of our motivation for going to college, for pursuing certain types of jobs, even our extracurriculars and our, our relationships are about making an amount of money to live the kind of life we want. It makes sense that we're tempted to worry about that, right? It pays those bills. But Jesus says that if the desire for money owns you, if you seek security in that, anxiety about that will paralyze you and sap you of the ability to live as God's child. So maybe money is your master. My master is usually approval. I care deeply about what people think of me. I am the person who watches a football game and sees the players in the huddle and goes, are they talking about me? Okay, what do they think? Is this a... And there are times that this level of anxiety, which I'm not joking about, has paralyzed me as a college teacher because I'm constantly worried about whether my students find my classes useful or or interesting, and I'm fretting over any sign in the huddle that they might not. I work so hard for approval because I think it will provide for my needs, but it doesn't. And it robs me of finding joy in God's approval of me as his daughter. But but if being owned by something else can paralyze us with anxiety, there's hope in the opposite truth. The fact is God owns us. And if we see that we're God's children and he'll provide for us, we have no room in our lives to be owned by the worries of this life. This doesn't mean that worry won't try to make demands on us or the world won't try to act like it's our master, but we can say no to it. We identify with a different set of priorities. We know who's taking care of us. We can follow God in an anxious world when we live of our identity as children who belong to a loving father. That's the truth this first story tells us. All right, let's go back to the main passage to look at the next illustration. 
Verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? This is the second picture. Birds. Uh, So we're all lucky to know some experts on birds in Illini Life uh, who have taught me and all of us just how fantastic birds really are. You heard from one of them this morning. Uh, You heard about the other one, Maureen. She's a hidden gem in Illini Life. Everyone should know her. So birds are wonderful. Uh, But ancient Near Eastern society didn't have that same vision of birds. They were unimportant. In fact, some rabbis later than Jesus' time said, you know, don't even bother praying for birds. They really don't matter. Uh, Not only that, birds are unimportant, but they're also unproductive. They don't do anything to earn their food, at least not on the level of farming. But God feeds them. So why does Jesus use birds here? I think it's because of a lie that sometimes fans the flames of our worry. The lie that everything depends on us. That we have to sow and reap and gather enough to be fed. That we have to stop the flames in the world. That we have to work hard enough or be smart enough to provide for our needs. No wonder I'm anxious and divided. How am I going to provide for myself and follow God? But Jesus' illustration of the birds gives us a profound truth. You don't have to perform enough or produce enough in order for God to provide for you. If God cares for the birds, God will care for you because he's your father. God isn't waiting for the birds to meet a productivity quota. They don't earn it with spectacular diligence or by being a superb starling. The birds just receive it, and so do we. We receive God's provision because we're we're his children and he's our father. Did you catch that in verse 26? Jesus says, your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? God is our father, and he looks out for his family. And that's another truth that we send back at the lies that make us anxious. We matter to God a lot. So it doesn't depend on us, which is great news because we're actually totally incapable of accomplishing the things we worry about. And verse 27 makes that so clear. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? I hate this because I'm an Enneagram type 6. I burn a lot of calories worrying, and I want to believe that that is productive. And don't get me wrong. Jesus is not talking bad about planning for the future, being prepared, or taking responsibility, which is what type 6s do. Those are good things. We do those. He is talking about people who do all of those things out of fear because they think that everything depends on them. And for those people, God has a liberating truth. Actually, no, your worry can't do anything. Not not on your own. Does that mean that we do nothing? Absolutely not. We're in a hot pursuit of a good kingdom. What it does mean is that we're freed to work with reckless abandon because we know that everything doesn't depend on us. All that we do will happen because God is working through us. So we actually do sow and reap and gather into barns and go on Grubhub because that's how humans get food. 
But we realize that all of it comes from God, not from us. It's all a gift, and we trust him with it as we work. We can follow God in an anxious world when we live out of our identity as children of a father who feeds people. And that's the second illustration. This takes us to Jesus' third picture. And why are you worried about clothing? Okay, let's pause for a hot second to talk about clothes in this society. They were a lot more valuable than they are today. Jesus' listeners couldn't go to Old Navy and buy $20 jeans when theirs wore out. Clothes were expensive. They were time-consuming to make, and they were precious, often passed down as heirlooms from parent to child. Jesus' listeners might have responded to his question, why are you worried about clothing, with a, well, duh, Jesus, we're worried about clothing. It's kind of a big deal. So Jesus speaks into that totally legitimate concern with another illustration of God's lavish goodness in verse 28. Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? God clothes the lilies. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled about what these flowers were. But whatever they were, they were a totally disposable plant. They had a short life and a sad end. They're used as oven fuel. They burn up. But God covers them. And does God ever cover them? They are like Solomon, a king during the golden age of the Jewish people, fabled for his extravagance. They're like the stars of my super sweet 16. Have any of you seen this show? Yes, okay. Uh, So uh, entitled 16-year-olds get thrown massive parties. They get new sports cars. People carry them around. Rihanna escorts them to their soiree. And just like those kids, these lilies have done nothing to earn their 30 minutes of extravagance. These lilies are extra. They are blinged out. They look like royalty. And here's the point, Jesus says. If God is so extravagantly good for something so temporary, something that has done nothing to earn it, that's about to burn out, why would he not be richly good to his own children for whom he has planned an eternally good future in Christ? I think this picture speaks to another lie that I'm tempted to believe that can fuel my worry. Sometimes when I'm anxious, I believe that God's not going to give me good things, at least not unless I do enough to earn it. I can think maybe he'll give me the basics, but but God's stingy or he's stringing me out, but I'm just going to survive. No. The truth, God is an extravagant giver. We won't just make it. We'll really live. But really living is not the same as having an easy or pain-free life. Unlike the parents on my super sweet 16, God doesn't guarantee us everything we want or painless existence. First off, we live in a broken world, and God mourns with us in the midst of it and cares for us as a good father. But also, sometimes good parents allow their children to experience difficult things, or they don't give their children something because they know that there's something better for them. The lilies tell us, that God will provide for us richly in the midst of all of these hard things, even if it's in ways different from what we might expect. I can give you just a couple of examples of God's provision for me in my Enneagram type 6 life. 
so back, back in the spring, uh, I was turned down for my dream job at the very last moment, and I had no idea how I was going to pay my bills when I graduated. Uh, and God gave me a job here at the university. It's not glamorous, but, but it pays my bills, and it gives me the chance to be involved in the kingdom work he's doing here. Uh, if I'm being totally blunt, I worry sometimes about being alone because God hasn't given me the significant other that I want. But he has given me a family in this church in relationships that are deeper and more meaningful than I ever really expected to have. Uh, there are times that I've told God this semester, God, I feel like I'm just surviving. And he's given me moments of rest and beauty in the chaos of college writing. And so with that provision, I'm emboldened to seek God in the kingdom without living in FOMO because I know that God gives me what I need and beyond we can follow God wholeheartedly in an anxious world when we live out of our identity as children of a good father who gives us what is good in the brokenness. Okay. So far, we've looked at a few pictures that speak to the lies we're tempted to believe when we identify with anxiety. Jesus has invited us to see God as our loving father who cares for us and to live out of that identity by trusting him. If we believe that our father owns us, we're freed of the anxiety of living to serve any other master in this world. If we believe that our father wants to give us food because he's our dad, we're freed from the crushing pressure to perform enough. If we believe that our father gives lavishly extra gifts to his kids, we'll be free from the anxiety that God's just stringing us out, that our needs won't be met. But I need to pause here because we've already covered the fact that it's not enough to tell someone, don't worry, right? And maybe you're thinking, sure, Dr. Kate, this is lovely, but I know this. I know God's a good father. I know I can trust him, but I'm still anxious. My response is, yeah, I am right there with you. Can I tell you how anxious I was in the week leading up to this talk? I was playing in a wedding. I was being observed for my teaching, which you already know makes me anxious. I was behind on my finances, facing a kind of painful personal situation, made a huge professional mistake, and I was staring down 500 pages of grading, which is not an exaggeration. And I was getting ready to teach on this passage, and I kept telling my little type six heart, Kate, God is a good father. You can trust him, remember? And I was still so anxious, so I get that. This is hard. True things can be so hard to believe. And someone told me once that the hardest distance to travel is the 18 inches between your head and your heart, between knowing something and really believing it in your toes. So how do we, how do we travel that distance with these truths? Well, we definitely don't do it alone. We're a kingdom family. And I don't think we all do it in the same way. I think we have creativity with the Holy Spirit for ways that we can internalize these truths. Uh, Russ told me the other day that when he was in college and he was feeling anxious, he'd pick up rocks and he'd throw them as a way to act out casting his anxiety on God. So that, that, was, that worked for Russ. I have another friend who, when she's anxious, she journals and journals and journals, and God meets her in that. I have a friend who, who picks up a guitar and plays worship songs to the Lord, and God meets her in that. Me, there are a few things that I do. This morning, I went for a walk. And I, I talked to God, and I asked him to show me what was false and what was true about what I was thinking and feeling. Sometimes when my anxiety becomes too much, I'll text one of my friends, and I'll let them know what's going on. And it gives them a chance to empathize with me 
and to speak truth and encouragement to me and to pray for and with me. These are just a few examples of ways that you might help make these truths your own. You've got creativity in the Holy Spirit to help you in discerning that. But I think finding ways to cling to these truths is one place where we start. And so we cling to these realities about God as a good father, but we also have to replace the worry with something worthwhile. And that's where Jesus turns in the close of this passage. Verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, that's the world, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. It's countercultural to not worry. And Jesus points that out. But the reason we don't have to, or we don't have to be identified by that, is because we trust that God is fully aware that the world is on fire, and he knows what we need, and he can provide it. Jesus invites us then to replace worry with something better. Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we seek the kingdom. What does that mean? I think God gives us a roadmap in the Sermon on the Mount. It means we value what God values. We're poor in spirit. We're dependent on him. We're peacemakers, pure like the Beatitudes. It means that as salt enlighten this world, we reveal the flavor of God's goodness and truth to others. It means we love our enemies. We respond to evil with acts of generosity and kindness. It means we live a prayerful life where we bring everything before God and experience his provision for it. It means we seek God together because if anxiety isolates us, the kingdom is a community of people. And as we pursue this kingdom of our Father, it reveals something about him in an anxious way. You might be thinking, okay, cool story, but that's, that's an overwhelming picture. That's huge, and it's kind of vague. Practically, how do I seek the kingdom now? Uh, I'd suggest that sometime today you just you ask God where he might be pointing you to a first step in that. Maybe read through the Sermon on the Mount and ask him to speak to you. Maybe he's calling you to set aside time to weave prayer into your life. Maybe he's challenging you in how you respond to a roommate who has wronged you. Maybe he's inviting you to pursue a spiritual conversation with someone you know and put salt on a thirsty tongue. If you ask God, I believe he'll show you a step in how you can seek the kingdom. You don't have to worry about figuring it all out at once. The Father rejoices over little steps towards him and he will run to meet you with provision. As we wrap things up, I want to point out that when Jesus tells us to seek this kingdom, he knows exactly what it will take for him personally to usher it in. Because the world is a flaming dumpster fire in its separation from God, God himself steps into the flames. Jesus comes and takes on a life and a body like ours and has to find food and get clothing and not at Old Navy. He's economically insecure, often relying on outside support to meet his basic needs, even as he's healing the sick and raising the dead. Then he dies for our sins, for the fires that we have started. And when he rises from the dead, he says that nothing in this world will stop him or the kingdom community he's renewing around him. Here's what Romans 8.32 says about God's intention behind all of that. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God is willing to give the son, then God is in it to win it in this relationship. 
He's going to take care of you. It doesn't mean that we're going to live a pain-free, comfortable life. But it does mean that nothing will separate us from God's love in the midst of the worst things this anxious age can throw at us. God is with us in the pain, and God promises to work through us in this world, and one day to restore all things. We're going to move in a moment into a time of worship and response. And we're going to sing a song I love called Nothing I Hold On To. And as you worship, I just want to encourage you to ask God to show himself to you as a good father. Ask him to show you if there's any lies you're believing about who he is or what you have to do to earn things. And ask him to respond with overwhelming truth about who he is for you. And then ask him what your next step might be, either to get these truths from your head into your heart or to take steps to pursue his kingdom now. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe grab someone if, you're, if you want to know more and ask them, how can I get into following this kingdom? We'd be glad to talk to you. All right, let's pray. Father,